irrigation has been instrumental in really changing the face of agriculture in this region. And of course, it's not just crop production, but even livestock production and how, you know, irrigation has allowed us to really expand livestock systems across this region. And we've seen that, as I mentioned, with the dairy industry. You know, we can rail in small grains, but we cannot rail in forages. So that's really something that um, has changed, I, I would say, the face of agriculture in this region in the last five years. A whole new era of communication in the crop industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the crop industry right in your pocket. And what's best, you can listen to all of them while driving to the field, to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. KWS Hybrid Rye, seeding the future since 1856. Welcome to the Crop Science Podcast Show a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and all that's working in the global crop industry. Welcome to the Crop Science Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Arnell. Today, I'm excited to welcome Dr. Jordan Bell onto the podcast. Jordan is at Texas A&M. She is an associate professor and agronomist with A&M AgriLife. And I've been honored to at least be able to follow her and her, her research excavates since she got on staff in 2014. And as far as somebody from the outside looking in, I've always respected everything Jordan's done. And honestly, anytime I get a chance to collaborate with her, I, I do it in a heartbeat. So, Jordan, first, welcome to the Crop Science Podcast. And, and kind of a follow-up, can you share with the audience a little bit of your background, how you ended up, where you're at, and then... Then kind of some of the work that you're doing. Yeah, no, well, first, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. It's um, it's a great opportunity to visit with you. And, you know, likewise, I enjoy following you and I, you do great work. And your work is valuable, not just to the producers in Oklahoma, but in the Texas Panhandle as well. So um, it's just great to visit with you. So um, I have been with Texas A&M AgriLife since 2014. Before that, though, I actually worked for USDA ARS, and I worked at the research laboratory at Bushland. Um, I worked in dryland cropping systems, did a lot with manure management and irrigation management, deficit irrigation management, I should say, primarily in wheat sorghum systems. And I decided to go back to school and get my PhD after um, a while working as a research technician. So I did that. And about the time I was graduating, the position I currently have was opened. And of course, my predecessor was Brent Bean. And he really set such a good foundation for this program, Um, did a lot of the um, work with forage sorghums and really recognizing that as the region becomes water limited, that's going to be um, the forage choice for these these dry land and, and limited irrigated acres. Um, I don't think, though, at the time we would have even anticipated the quantity of forage that's demanded in this region because of the expansion of the dairy industry across the whole um, High Plains, Southern Great Plains region. So, um, I have been in this region and um, grew up in this region, grew up, my family was in ag. And so I really um, value working in, in the high plains. You know, there are the greatest producers across 
the the Southern Great Plains, you know, Eastern New Mexico, Texas High Plains, Oklahoma. Um, they really understand how to optimize crop production in extreme environments. And increasingly, it's becoming more challenging. Um, cyclical droughts, as well as rapidly declining groundwater, has really posed a lot of problems for producers. So, Jordan, just because this is kind of a wide reach, and I know where you're at because I've been there multiple times, but kind of share a little bit about the environment. I do believe that that Southern High Plains environment is a unique one that most outside wouldn't grasp some of the challenges and unique natures of not only the environment, but the soils that we're working with. Right. So when we talk about the environment, I, I don't think we can really emphasize the toughness in, in without talking about water. Um, this is, a, it's a, I guess, a semi-arid, small um, grass prairie, neonative rangelands. Um, but as we have looked at crop productivity in this region, we would not have seen the advances in crop productivity if it hadn't have been for irrigation. And that's because of the rainfall. Um, this area sits in an 18 to 24 inch precipitation zone with 18 inches being the average annual rainfall in the western Texas Panhandle and 24 inches being the average annual rainfall in the eastern Texas Panhandle. So while, you know, it's a water rainfall limited region, we couple that with an extremely Evective environment. It's very windy, low relative humidity, so we have a very high evaporative demand. Um, this region actually sits in a um, PET zone of 90 inches per year. So when you look at how that drives that crop water demand, there's no way we are going to meet the crop water demand for optimum productivity with rainfall in most years. And so, again, back to irrigation, irrigation has been instrumental in really changing the face of agriculture in this region. And, of course, it's not just crop production, but even livestock production and how, you know, irrigation has allowed us to really expand livestock systems across this region. And we've seen that, as I mentioned, with the dairy industry. You know, we can rail in small grains, but we cannot rail in forages. So that's really something that um, has changed, I, I would say, the face of agriculture in this region in the last five years. Yeah, that, I know when I go outside of our area and move maybe into the Corn Belt and do talks, you know, in Indiana and Ohio, uh, one of the aspects that are they get blown away by is our peak evaporative demand, the peak PET that you mentioned. Been a couple moments from where, uh, you know, when our corn or forage sorghum's going at, at, at full bore, uh, you know, VT and beyond, what kind of ET, evaporative trans, uh, evapotranspiration, are, are we seeing, or more so are you seeing on a daily? I think those numbers would shock anybody outside of our region. Right. So, you know, on average, we talk about when we get to those peak water demand periods, 35 hundredths of an inch per day. But even this year um, at our Bushland Research Station, when we were 100 to 105 degrees, we were looking at over four tenths of an inch per day. And so when you look at the, the lack of stored soil moisture and the lack of timely in-season precipitation, there goes um, irrigation. And when producers had the irrigation capacity to, you know, really um, apply higher water amounts, they could meet that. But today at our lower irrigation capacities, we cannot apply 
that type of water. And so that's where um, we really have to reevaluate how we're managing these systems. And so producers are really at a point, a crossroads, you know, do they continue to irrigate the same irrigated acreage at a reduced rate? Do they concentrate the water? Um, do they look at alternative cropping choices? You know, how do they manage these systems? And it, it becomes not just that, but then how do you couple the agronomics with that? And so it's really an interesting period in this region. So before we go into agronomy, I'll just add that, especially in my region, I'd say it probably uh, translates well into yours, is that historically we had enough well capacity and water capacity where farmers would pre-water winter and early spring wanting two to four foot of soil moisture profile they would build pause during planting, get the seed up, get whether it's cotton corn or otherwise, get that crop up shortly after, then start watering again. And, and the amazing thing, they, they don't turn off the pivots. They right. don't stop. And by black layer, you're at negative, net negative, because basically from about V6 on, you're chasing a losing system because your, your PET, your PET is much greater than any amount of water you can put on. So when it comes into that, now we're talking about the Ogallala Aquifer. We're talking about, you know, uh, loss of well capacity. We have farmers in Oklahoma that are tying where they once had huge well capacity. Now they're tying two or three wells together to get enough for one. What are some of the strategies that you and your program have been working in? And, I, and 4-H is one right there. So what are some of the strategies that you're seeing? Exactly. So forage, um, you know, do we step back and consider forage production over grain production? And that really does become market driven. For a couple of years, we had extremely high forage prices because of the drought and the forage deficit that we were under. And so producers were able to capitalize on that. Now, there's a consequence to that. You know, you have to look at the whole system. Um, but then also, as you mentioned, you know, they're tying wells together. So do we consider, um, again, do we irrigate the same acreage? Do we deficit irrigate? Do we consider critical growth stage irrigation? Um, planting dates is another option, though. We've done a, quite a bit of work looking at alternative planting dates, especially in corn. Um, historically, producers were planting in April to late April. Um, and then with newer hybrids, we've been able to move that planting date very successfully and maintain the yield potential um, with an earlier relative maturity corn hybrid to May. And that's been um, successful probably for the last 20 years. But even with a May planting date, we are looking at that tasseling and silking window being in July. And that is during the hottest part of the summer. So when we talk about these peak ET periods and the water demand, if we do cannot meet that water demand, um, we see silk dehydration, we see reduced kernel set, um, we see a loss of leaf area because the plant can't, you know, transpirationally cool itself, and it just becomes really impactful. Um, and so shifting the planting date we see that we can reduce the cumulative water demand. We reduce the heat stress that we would have in July, but then it becomes, okay, what if we run into the risk of an early fall um, cool, cold front? And so that could potentially reduce kernel set and test weights. And so it's, you, you either balance risk on the front end or there's risk on the back end. That, that's 
Fascinating. You know, I'm listening to the farmers up in the Kansas border also. They're talking about, you know, they're pushing so early. They kept going earlier and earlier. Last couple of years, they've taken a step back because they felt like they went so early. They pushed tasseling during during too hot and they had too much pollen issues. So mm-hmm. it's interesting to hear that you guys are maybe experiencing the same thing a little bit further south. It is exactly. And I've worked with producers who have been tried to look at earlier maturing hybrids. Now, we see where a 105-day hybrid does really well in this region. And of course, even if we plant late, those hybrids speed up. And so you might take, you know, a 105-day hybrid and you plant it in mid-June. Now it's going to be a 100-day hybrid. And so you really don't need, um, you know, a- as many days because of the growing degree day accumulation, longer days, and it, they're, they're, they can be very efficient. But you get too early. And the, what we run into, there are not early hybrids with the kernel integrity. And so now all of a sudden we have... Poor kernel t- integrity, we have ear rots, we potentially set ourselves up for a disaster in that arena, and yield losses associated with ear lo- rots. And so it really does become, as we move into these water-limited environments, how do we manage all these different factors? And so then there becomes crop selection. You know, do we continue growing corn um, when we have limited water or when do we make the decision to switch to grain sorghum and producers who have not optimally managed their grain sorghum say oh there's not the yield potential well that's because it was not properly managed we know that when we optimize irrigation optimize fertility you know insect management everything that we would do for a corn crop we can achieve these phenomenal sorghum yields and there's the market for it Uh And so that really becomes a consideration. And then, of course, we've had cotton expand into the northern panhandle and into southwestern Kansas. And so that's really been a good opportunity for producers to take um, what would be historically acreage that was dedicated to corn and, you know, really stretch that water with a cotton crop. And so... That, that provides another strategy. And, and, and cotton, the newer hybrid, sorry, varieties grow extremely well. You know, we can make those higher yield potentials. Yeah, we, I was able to pull some four, four and a half bale out of uh, Goodwell this year, which Fantastic. I really didn't think I would get there. I, I was hoping for two. So, uh, but it was also, you know, that the high plains, the southern high plains, I guess is what you'd say. It's so interesting on the cotton crop is because we're such we're getting that really short window, right? So mm-hmm. I chose a longer cultivar, which really beat out this year because we had a longer fall, which if we'd had one freeze that could have come a few weeks earlier, I would have been down and I would have been I would have been picking a bell bell and a half instead of that four and a half. And it exactly. It's just such a, a gamble, which gets into the diversification, the diversification not of crops, but the cultivars. Um, some of the stuff in you mentioned, I'm kind of curious when you have a conversation with a farmer or a producer, how does it go on selecting the choice of, do I switch crop or percent of fully irrigated? What are the, 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 what are the thought processes or the conversations that lead to those decisions? You know, that's a great question because I don't know if anyone, if there's one answer to that, it really d- depends on a farm by farm consideration. Um, 
And especially as we have looked at producers switching to cotton, do they have the equipment? Are they willing to either invest in the equipment? Do they want to work with a custom harvester? You know, those type things. You know, the High Plains as a whole has been set up for grain production. And so that is kind of how they, I know many producers do step back and weigh those considerations, which are very real considerations. Um, And then, of course, ultimately, and I think it's just human nature, you know, we tend to manage a system with the anticipation there's, okay, this is going to be a good year. Now, all year, El Nino was going to come. It was going to rain this year. And it did. And then it didn't. (laughs) And so um, it really does become a little bit of a gamble as well, just because if, if you don't take a little bit of that risk, there's not the potential for the reward. So it really does become how do you balance it so that it's not a catastrophe, but yet you can capitalize on on good, I think, systems. And so that is where, you know, co- cotton does have the flexibility. I, I like how you mentioned you planted a, a little longer of a maturity class. I have seen that a couple of years ago, I did some work looking at um, what would be very early maturing cotton. So very determinate versus what would be a medium long. And what I saw in looking at irrigation timing is that those very early maturing varieties, if we don't have the irrigation early, you know, when we start putting on those squares, they are going to not just, it's not just finishing rapidly at the end, but they're going to transition um, into reproductive development very quickly and to cut out very quickly and they're done. Whereas the longer varieties will come back out of cutout and all of a sudden, you know, we can put on that second crop and capitalize on that. And I do think it becomes important that as producers are making their selections for their cropping system, they're also considering how they're managing the varieties and what variety will give them some flexibility. Um, you know, that's where as we look at wheat, you know, wheat kind of comes in and out of sometimes popularity with producers. Wheat can use a lot of water. I mean, if we're really going to maximize wheat, you know, it's it, it can use a lot of water. It can mine a lot of water out of the, out of the soil, too, and really deplete that profile. But wheat also truly has nine lives, like everyone says. I mean, you know, you can look at a wheat crop and ride it off. And next thing you know, four months later, it made a crop. So... Um, you know, we really see where, especially as we look at, a re, uh, I, I guess, concentrating water. And, and now what do we do with that acreage? We're now having to manage what's going to be dry land or very deficit irrigated acreage. You know, what's going to be a crop we can put there that's going to have the least amount of risk? And so, you know, a, a low yielding wheat crop is, you know, better than a failed irrigated crop, I think, that... Um, had a lot of inputs rather than stretching that water thin. Sorghum, same thing, very flexible. And plus the value that I see with wheat and and our forage sorghums is one, the narrow row spacing, the ability to have a little bit more residue, a little bit more root anchor. I mean, cotton is a great option once we bring it in, but the the post-harvest residual that's left behind, once we get in this high plane environment where the wind really doesn't stop blowing, and the second that we're dry, we start having more soil movement. So, you know, that that integration of those, I mean, in the Southern Plains, we, we really relied on a wheat with a, or a cotton with a cover crop wheat, you know, mm-hmm. AD List does a lot of that stuff. We, in our Southwest district, we do a lot of that. Almost all cotton acres now have some wheat, but needing something to hold that soil in is always critical. Exactly. Looking at 
you know, if you want to, what are some of the techniques you might be excited about that may not be adopted just yet or as early adoption that you see? And maybe it's old techniques, but what are some things that you think are going to be impacting your region uh, for the positive nature in the next five to 10 years? So, you know, as we, you know, as we, I mean, that's a really good question. Um, <laughs> well, I just came up with it. So, you know, I just kind of threw that out there. So sorry about that one. No, but. no, no, no. It, it really is. You know, how, how are we going to, you know, optimize crop production with more, increasingly more limited water? And it's not just the impact to the farmer. You know, there's this trickle down impact we see as we see, you know, de- decreases in cotton production, how that's impacting the regeners. We see, you know, as we um, displace grain, whether it's from corn or sorghum or wheat, and we have more silage, you know, now all of a sudden that's impacting our elevators and that industry. So we have, you know, all these considerations. But really, you know, at the farm level, I can't help but think that um, as we look at, I guess, you know, a, a truly integrated system, fertility being one of those components, um, how do we incorporate technology so that it's profitable? And that's something that I really do step back because it's amazing to see the technology on equipment Mm -hmm. um, and how that changes the speed of planting, the speed of harvest, the ability to really assess um, spatial variability across a field with imagery. Um, How are we though going to integrate that? And that's, that's, that's something I, I wish I was, you know, more of a um, a sensor based person so that I can say, yeah, I think this is going to change things. But I but I really do. There's no way I don't think that we can stay at the forefront if we are not continuing to consider. I want to go sideways on this one because you said something that has actually been in a, a lot of conversations, especially, you know, Jason Warren, I've worked with for a long time, who is a high plains works in there as I admin. The conversations when we get outside, these people that are outside our region that see what's happened in the Ogallala, the, you know, and they say, well, just, you know, stop farming or don't grow. Can you speak briefly about the impact that irrigation has on the communities and to, to just imagine what the communities, if we were all of a sudden to stop having irrigation, you know, it, it's a big social issue, too. It's not just production. It's just, for me, at least, and we see it, it's a social issue. Oh my gosh, it's it is a social issue and it is um every time we have seen a transition in agriculture um and a- every time we have seen a technological advance in agriculture we've seen how jobs have changed and every time we lose something like irrigation or that's going to even make that change greater. Um one thing in the last 10 years that I have seen and observed and I find so interesting for example is cotton harvest. We have gone to, um, you know, round bale modules, and that's fantastic at the farm level. You know, you have now taken a job that took several people. You had someone, you know, driving the bowl buggy. You had someone packing modules. You had someone, you know, out you, driving the stripper. You had people doing all sorts of things. And now, really, you can have one person out there in the middle of the night, and you can move those round bales the next day. And so every time we something happens in ag, you know, we see these technological advances, we do lose, lose jobs in the community. Um, but as we take irrigation out of the picture, we are now, we, we will see 
And we have seen that, I believe, already in the southern portion of the Texas High Plains, where irrigation has, um, you know, probably declined the most, or I shouldn't say probably, it has, it has declined the most rapidly. And as we move north, you know, we gradually see that transition. And it's not just the impact at the farm level and the jobs at the farm and people can no longer hire um, you know, their farm hands and they no longer need as many people because they don't have the crop productivity. Um, but there's the impact. People are no longer shopping within their community. And they don't need as, uh, or they're not buying the implements. They're not buying the soil moisture sensors. And that becomes a really important consideration. You know, we talk about the value of sensors and how this can change agriculture. But if you are at a point where you only have a capacity to, say, apply five inches of water a year, do you really need to fully censor that field? That's all you have. You're not going to say, oh, okay, I'm only going to apply three and a half inches this year, or, you know, you can't apply more. And so there, there's that impact. But then beyond the agriculture sector, well, now all of a sudden you have people who are leaving, you have fewer kids, you see schools close. We've already seen towns with hospital districts closing. You know, we have t towns where the main street and the town square used to be robust and they are dead communities. And it is really tragic to see you know, these agricultural based communities that um, become ghost towns because there is no longer the productivity there. So as we easily say, the greater we and people um, who are making policy say, well, just stop farming. Well, fine and dandy. But when you take the farming out of these communities, you lose that economic foundation. Now, that's not to say that the livestock industry is not still going to serve a role yes. um, because there's a significant economic component to the livestock industry. But the jobs are different. You know, if you take all this land and convert it to native rangeland, that's going to be a totally different structure. And even though we have, um, you know, a, a very solid workforce within the fed, you know, whether it's the beef cattle industry, the confined animal feeding industry, or say even the dairy industry, you know, those again, those are those are different structures. So, and just the you know the the investment so and, and i like to share this with everybody the investment we have on a per acre basis in intensive crop production you have ag inputs you have human labor inputs and you have the output that cash flow per acre that goes to the farm that then goes to pay bills it goes to all the other things if we go to native range it, it's it's really great for the the sustainability of that soil and that environment but just the economic value and input going into that per acre basis yeah, it, it's significant. I expect we're going to see, especially with the new climate uh, smart bills coming through, I expect to see a lot of our traditional dry land grazed out winter wheat acres go into a more perennial forage, which will be interesting, probably as productive, but it does shift the management and the strategies. It's going to be quite interesting it to see 15 down, years down the road. Does. So because of that, you and I are along the same, same, same brainwave here. Um, I recently started a project where we are looking at um, improved perennial forages. So I have um, a, a very water limited Bermuda grass that I've established. I'm actually doing some of this with Mark Marcellus at New Mexico State. And so as we look at how do we, and this is back to your first question, how do you manage this limited irrigated acres? Do you take, do you take it out? Does it 
does, does would an improved perennial forage be an option? So um, deficit irrigated Bermuda grass versus a um, Iron Master blue stem versus like an NRCS blend. And so looking at the productivity of those in comparison to an annual forage and, you know, is it going to, you know, the economic value, but also that this will health benefits. But you mentioned climate, and I don't want to make this a confrontational discussion, but at some point, when do we step back? And in academia, we are quick to get on the grant bandwagon. And but but at some point is why is ag to blame? Why is the farmer taking the responsibility of the world's climate problems and having to having to be the. Well, no, the bear. So and, and maybe I'll finish. I mean, it's not only are they blamed, but they're they're basically taking the risk of adopting new things and, and adoption of new and, and th- it's a risk. And so they're, they're made to take this risk or even economic loss. And, and it's deemed as they are supposed to take this economic loss. Right. And so by, by, by biting this carrot, mm-hmm. you know, we have all these climate smart programs and they are going to bite a carrot and maybe get five, 10, 20 bucks an acre for this carrot. But what is going to be the trickle down impact from that? And by biting that carrot, you know, they are acknowledging that they had poor agricultural practices and that they are improving them in in the name of climate smart agriculture. But when we step back and look at the big picture and look at the impact of flying, I fly, I'm just as guilty here, the impact of, um, you know, and it's not, I'm, I'm not against fossil fuels, but plastics and not recycling. And I mean, for heaven's sakes, I just got back from the NFR Vegas. You should see the lights. If you can imagine the, the, the carbon emissions associated with lighting up Vegas, you know, I mean, I mean and so a desert that has how many water features? Exactly. In an evaporative environment where any surface water has gone like that. But exactly. know, that's another story. Right. It is another story. But so I did not go to ASA and I created this slide for a presentation that was shared on my behalf. And my um, collaborator being the very politically savvy guy he is took the slide out. Um, But I was stating that I was doing my part for the environment by not going. And my round trip flight from Amarillo, Texas to St. Louis and back was equivalent to the CO2 emissions per EPA and the EPA website of like four dairy cows per year or, you know, a couple of hundred of West Texas farm acres per year, you know, to offset all this. And so it's like, this is ridiculous. And, and we're putting the blame on agriculture, saying that clap, the agriculture you know, needs to change their practices, but we as the general public do not change our activities. Jordan, I, I, I'm trying to think how to politely say this. I can't wait till you have full tenure and are full profit really let loose. <laughs> I, I know you're you're tenured, and, and honestly, oh, no, I, guess what? I can't get tenured in the AM system. I'm off campus, so okay. I should have I should have looked at your, your stuff. <laughs> oh, that's uh, okay. the, the fun thing. So this is why I love this podcast. I get a visit with folks like you, and hey, I don't think we. Uh, addressed anything that you said we should address in your intro. Uh, But I think uh, just conversations with you is so fun, and we're going to have to have you back. It's time for our famous three. 
you know, being, you know, uh, good on time and the time on days. I'm going to wrap up. I already told you some of the questions. Uh, so, um, you know, what resource, if you're, if you're thinking of things and a question comes up work-wise, what are some of your go-to resources? You know, I would say my fellow, um, colleagues. I mean, it's amazing, you know, and not just fellow colleagues with the A&M system, colleagues at OSU. I, I read your information. I read um, information out of Kansas State. You know, we are truly all in this together. We are all really trying to produce valuable information to benefit producers in the Southern Great Plains. And collectively, there's great resources out there. So my go-to information really would be the information from my colleagues. So in any free time, what do you do? Do you have any leisurely activities or what, what's your free time look like, Jordan? You know, at this point in my life, my free time is pretty consumed by family and family activities. Um, I, I don't have a lot of hobbies. You know, I, I wish I could say I, I knit and quilt and um, <laughs> do great things. But no, I, I, I work and I and and have my kids. But that, that's great. I love them both. So, uh, and, and uh, finally, where do people go to find out more about your work and what's going on in your program? Okay, so um, you can just Google Texas A&M AgriLife, Jordan Bell, Amarillo, um, and you can find, um, we have a website where we do post our um, annual activities, um, or they can just reach out to me directly. That would be great, too. Well, Jordan, thank you for your time and everybody listening. You know, if you like this video, if you enjoyed this podcast, uh, take the time, share it. We're new. So get the word out about the Crop Science Podcast. Leave us a comment if you'd like to know more about this topic or any other. And also, if you have anybody you think we just have to have on as a guest, please let us know. Jordan, again, thank you for your time. Have a wonderful, wonderful time with your family. Thank you. You too. Looking to elevate your brand and captivate audiences through the power of podcasting? Look no further. Introducing the custom podcast brought to you by Wisemetics, where we take care of the behind the scenes so that you can focus on what truly matters. Podcasting has become an invaluable tool for brand awareness, but let's face it, putting it into practice can be a daunting task. It's incredibly time consuming and requires technical know-how, but don't worry, we've got you covered. With our experienced team at The Help, we'll handle the operational aspects so you can channel your energy into what your company does best. Are you ready to unleash the podcasting potential of your company? Schedule a call with one of our specialists today at the link in the bottom of this episode. You'll also receive a free podcast strategy consult tailored to the unique needs and goals of your business.